0: I mean if we do the things that we need to do to transform the way we move ourselves around um to to change how how we live and uh, into to from housing to work um we and obviously how we get our energy I mean there there are, there is a lot of job creation in this
1: Hello and welcome to the third episode of What Comes After What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. In her recent book, On Fire, Naomi Klein wrote that one of the reasons that we have not acted sufficiently on climate change is, quote, because politicians were too trapped in short-term electoral cycles or because climate change seemed too far off, or because stopping it was too expensive, or because the clean technologies weren't there yet. We're now in a moment where almost none of that is any longer true. The climate crisis is upon us, and the price of technologies has dropped dramatically. Right now, we find ourselves needing to rebuild our economies at a time when we have everything that we need to do it in a climate-friendly way. Most of you will know that Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist and best-selling author. Her most recent book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, calls for a kind of new politics as the only solution to the climate crisis. She's also written hugely influential classics like No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and This Changes Everything. I started our conversation by asking Naomi what she is seeing in how governments and companies are responding to the current crisis and how it compares with the political strategy that she wrote about in The Shock Doctrine. As always, I'd love to hear your feedback. My email is james.shaw.com at parliament.govt.nz. And please give us a rating in Apple Podcasts as it'll help others to find the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Naomi Klein.
0: Well, I'm definitely seeing examples of what I've called the, the shock doctrine. Um, you know, that book came out 13 years ago, um, not quite 20 um, but it just it you know, I started writing that book um because I was covering the u s invasion of Iraq, and I was tracking how this strategy was it's really a a political strategy of using people's fear um uh, uh the fact that in a moment of profound crisis, you just have to focus on the daily emergency of staying alive that's actually a very useful time to push through extremely unpopular policies that would be resisted otherwise, if people were able to fully engage in a political process and certainly in a democratic process. So, you know, what I mean by, by the shock doctrine is not just, um, you know, doing big, bold things in the midst of crisis. Sometimes people um, mischaracterize it in that way. It is a it's really a way of doing an end run around democracy under cover of crisis. That that's what the shock doctrine is, and, um, and and we're seeing all kinds of examples of this in this pandemic moment in the United States, but but in other countries as well. Um, where in the U.K., for instance, we are seeing um, Boris Johnson's government uh, try um, going after the NHS, you know, this sacred institution that you can't go after under normal circumstances. We're seeing sort of peace, piecemeal privatization, even in a crisis where there is this uh, kind of unprecedented outpouring of appreciation and love for the NHS and for healthcare workers. Um, In Australia, uh, we're hearing talk of a gas led recovery and cutting the green tape. Um, We certainly are seeing the Trump administration using the pandemic to just grant the wish list of the fossil fuel companies, everything from direct bailouts of of debt, debt, Uh, uh, um, uh, of of companies that are weighed down by debt and were before the crisis, right? So it's really a a backdoor way of helping them out under cover of crisis, but also just announcing that the Environmental Protection Agency isn't actually going to enforce its its rules because apparently, um, you know, having regulators out there and monitors out there is non essential work at the same time as we have workers out there p- putting down new pipelines, which is insane in the midst of uh, a situation where we have way too much oil and gas and you have tankers just moored offshore because there's so much of it. So, sure, they're doing everything that they wanted to do um, deregulation, tax cuts, the whole wish list. I personally am more f- focused on. Uh, on some, some, some new shock doctrine style politics, which the tech industry is pushing um, where um, companies like Google and Amazon um, and Microsoft really are treating the lockdown period. And the fact that we have all been isolated in our homes and having to get everything delivered and having to order everything online and getting all of our distractions and entertainments streamed to us as a kind of a, well, in the words of Google's former CEO, um, Eric Schmidt, a grand experiment in remote learning, telehealth. And so I'm really worried that this pandemic is going to be used not to push a green new deal as I've been hoping, but a kind of a screen new deal where the idea is, you know, um, all this, all this, um, sort of shiny techie future that was being pushed before the pandemic as a way to make our lives more convenient, but people had big privacy concerns about it, right, is now being rebranded as a sort of a touchless pandemic proof future, a way for our kids to get their education on screens, for us to see the doctor via a screen, um, uh, get our get our goods delivered by driverless vehicles that people had qualms about before the pandemic. So I'm seeing a lot of tech companies busily rebranding what they do as um, you know, pandemic proof.
1: So in some way, I mean, you you referenced a hope that. This would be a Green New Deal, a green recovery. Uh, And there's certainly a lot of debate about that in New Zealand at the moment. Um, You know, on the one hand, uh, there's one line of thought that says what government should do is just ensure that high level settings are sorted out. And, you know, essentially what will happen is that some businesses will obviously fail because the shape of the economy is going to be so different. And then new things will emerge to meet new demands. On the other hand, uh, you know, you've got Pretty strong calls to invest in particular industries, um, you know, particularly green industries. Uh, but the accusation there is one about, well, then you're picking winners, and you know, who's to say that we're actually any good at those things versus other things that might emerge, uh, and so on. So that so there is a debate about that. And your book on fire is very much, you know, it is the prescription for for a green new deal. So I guess, I'm, what I'm curious about is how you ensure that the former the shock doctrine-style recovery doesn't happen, and how you do get the kind of positive, better future vision that you've outlined in On Fire. What one seems to be the inverse of the other.
0: Well, I think that they are, and I and I do think that in in a sense one precludes the other, in the sense that this um, this like high tech kind of dis utopian surveillance capitalism future that i'm describing is really expensive right um and it is you know we are we we are not just facing the crisis of the pandemic we're also facing the crisis of um of of you know an economy in freefall um and mass unemployment and how we um I, you know, I don't even want to use the word revive because I don't think we want to or even can go back to where we were before. Um, yeah, you know, I think Arundhati Roy's framing that the pandemic is a portal and we are going somewhere new is really important to understand. And that's why it is important to understand that you know Silicon Valley has no intention of going back to where things were before. They want to go somewhere else. And we are going to go somewhere else, and we have to decide where that somewhere else is. Right? We have to decide what we're going to carry with us through that portal, and what's going to drive us through it. Is it going to be fear driven? Um, and 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 are we going to understand that 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 the, the pandemic is not the only existential crisis that we face? We also face the the, the crisis of of climate disruption. They are interconnected as well because we are seeing research that shows that high mortality rates correlate really closely uh, to high levels of air pollution, particularly from diesel. Um, And so cleaner air and, um, you know, redesigning our cities in this moment so that we take them back as much as possible from cars, from private cars. Um, solves a few problems at once. It doesn't just clean the air. It also gives us more space and we need more space because we are um, gonna have to live in ways that are less crowded, right? So um, if we take our streets uh, back from cars as much as possible, then restaurants can spill onto sidewalks and pedestrians and cyclists can spill onto roads. Um, and we're a little bit less on top of each other. Uh, so I think that those are the solutions, um, the kind of double wins that we need to look at. You know, when, when I, um, when I wrote on fire, uh, and, and toured with it a few months ago, um, it was interesting because what, you know, the, I have been talking about the, these ideas for a long time. Uh, you know, I published This Changes Everything in 2014, which is really also a call for um, an approach to the climate crisis that recognizes that our economy and our ecology are on a collision course, right? Um, so it isn't just a techno technofix. Um, when I published This Changes Everything, I, I experienced a lot of sort of skepticism, like, oh, really, like, can't we just kind of tinker around the edges and can't capitalism fix this for us. When I published on fire, I didn't get any of that pushback. All I got was it's not realistic. Humans can't change like that. Um, It's too much. It's too fast. And I know, you know, that you hear this all the time, Jane. So I, I, you know, one of the things that I heard when I was touring with on fire is, okay, it is true that there are moments in history that we can point to when societies changed very quickly, like, in the midst of the Great Depression, when the original New Deal was introduced, which completely remade the U.S. economy, or during the Second World War, when Allied economies transformed how they produced to how they lived, how they grew their food—all of it, right? But those were in moments of crisis, and so the push—what some of the pushback I got was—you know—and this is back in October, November—was okay, but the U.S. economy is booming. Uh, unemployment is low, people are not going to embrace this kind of change when all traditional economic measures say that things are pretty much okay. So in, in a lot of ways, I think the situation to win these kinds of transformative changes are better when we have to multitask in this way. I mean, we do need an economic stimulus and the Green New Deal is modeled after the greatest economic stimulus of all time, which was the original New Deal.
1: I I mean, it's a very human instinct in a moment like this to say, look, I just want things to go back to the way they were before. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, even though I might be able to imagine that there is a, you know, a better, cleaner, greener, brighter future, uh, you know, that actually what's familiar, the world that I knew, you know, particularly if you're in the middle class and, you know, like you might not be kind of super well off or anything, but you're, you know, you're getting by. Um, and, and I don't know if you enjoyed your job or anything like that, but you had a roof over your head and, you know, that kind of thing. It's just like, oh, can we just <laughs> get back to normal, whatever normal was? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you've got that. On the other, you know, like you're saying, you know, this realization that there there is no going back. So, we, you know, we simply have to choose what of the of the new futures is, is there in front of us. But I think there's that, there is that tension, of course, that the vast majority of people, they just want to know that they've got a job sure. and that they're not going to lose the house and that their kids are going to be looked after. And,
0: you and the know, Green New Deal should cover all of that, right? And right now, people don't have jobs. Right now, we have a massive unemployment crisis. Right now, I mean, where I am, there's a massive homelessness crisis, Um and, and just rampant economic insecurity that predates this crisis and has been massively deepened by it. Um, so, you know, the whole framing of a Green New Deal is about saying to people, you don't need to choose between caring about a habitable future for our kids and for the planet um, and the need for those bread and butter issues, a job, a home, healthcare care. Um, it bundles it all together because it isn't a singular carbon based climate climate policy. It is a plan for a functioning economy based on caring for each other and the planet. And and so, you know, I think we need to talk about what it is that we miss. You know, when we say we want things to go back um, we want things to change. This is untenable. Um, But do people miss their cities being choked with pollution and cars and noise? Do people miss that? Because I'm seeing a lot of people who are enjoying walking right down the middle of the street, (laughs) you know, and, and I, and, 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 and do we miss, do we miss shopping? Is that the thing we miss most or is it each other? What is it that we are missing? And, um, and and who are we? And who and what are we appreciating most in this moment? I mean, the outpouring of love, right, for nurses, um, all healthcare workers, everybody in the care sector, for the people who are delivering the food that we need, who are growing it, who uh, are delivering the mail, the the you know the, the, the essential workers who are so invisibilized for the most part um, uh, uh, and, and, and whose, whose labor is so discounted for the most part, um, there's huge appreciation for them. I, and I, I, mean, I think like a lot of parents of small kids, I have a huge amount of appreciation for my son's teachers who I miss very, very much. And as I try and fail to homeschool my seven-year-old, um, uh, I, I certainly, uh, don't like this idea that uh, remote learning is the new normal, right? Um, so so I think what we need to do is learn from this, right? And really pry it apart. What is it that we want to take from this? What do we want to build from it? Because talking about reimagining how we move ourselves around and rethinking something like air travel, it's a hell of a lot harder to do when when our skies are filled with planes, right? And we're saying, okay, which of those planes are we going to say shouldn't be flying? Then a moment like we're in now when there are almost no planes in the air, and it's a discussion that we're having, okay, which planes should be in the air? What is essential travel, right? How do we, how do we rationally use our remaining carbon budget, which is vanishingly small, right? That's a that's a much different conversation. I think the reason why so many cities are you know, rapidly creating bike lanes in this moment and, 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 and saying, well, maybe we won't open every single street to car traffic. You know, when this is, when we return back to whatever, whatever it is, we're going to call it. Um, it's just simply because there is, as you know, <laughs> you're in government. I mean, the power of the inertia power of existing profitable industry. Um, it's, it's hard to, it's very hard to stop things that are happening, and especially when those things are profitable. But right now things are paused, um, and we have to figure out how we are going to stimulate a new kind of economy. And I think that that gives us all kinds of of options and and possibilities that we that we didn't have before.
1: I'm I mean, I'm certainly seeing a lot of the same things here. Um, and it is great that you know here we've got some towns and cities that are, actually. Laying out sort of what they're describing as emergency bike lanes, um, uh, because they understand that when we uh, kind of start returning to work, which is starting to happen, uh, that not everyone's going to want to crowd into public transport. That it's it's so actually more people are going to be wanting to to cycle and so on. So they're sort of taking that opportunity. And there has been a lot on social media about people are noticing an up up. Um, upswing in birdsong, and that they're seeing uh, birds in the trees that they hadn't seen before, either because they were too busy or because there is actually nature seems to be kind of reasserting itself. Um, One thing that worries me, though, is that that does feel like a slightly privileged um, take, you know, uh, for, for a kind of middle and middle and upper income earners who, you know, like me, I've got a home office, I don't have kids at home. Um, and so, and my technology works. Uh, and the nature of my job is that I went from 12 hours of in-person meetings a day to 12 hours of Zoom meetings a day. But otherwise, you know, things kind of carried on as normal. And I'm deeply aware that that is not true of a lot of people. You know that we've got a lot of people who are crowded into, um, well, overcrowded houses. Um, many of which are, are poor quality houses, and 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 with bad ventilation, and you know that kind of thing. Um, and the nature of their job, or they've actually just lost their jobs. They've been furloughed, or or you know are are at great risk. That uh, th- that their experience. Um is uh, not nearly as optimistic um, mm-hmm. and and so for them, you know the instinct is, can we just get back to normal? Can I have my job back, please? You know that would mm-hmm. be the kind of the the most basic kind of thing. And we have to cater to that,
0: you Look, know I mean, the a green new deal is 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 a jobs program first and foremost. I mean, if we do the things that we need to do, to transform the way we move ourselves around, um, to, to change how, how we live and uh, into, to, from housing to work, um, we, and obviously how we get our energy. I mean, there, there, there is A lot of job creation in this, and there are a lot of jobs that have just disappeared, right? Um, So I think we need to foreground that. You're absolutely right. We shouldn't be talking about birdsong quite so much um, to sell this. We should be talking about good green jobs, um, which are particularly appealing in a moment when the job market is collapsing in all kinds of ways and when the price of oil is as precarious as it is. You know, I think a lot of resource communities, uh, communities that have you know just been on this boom bus roller coaster with fossil fuels for so long, right? Um, you, know, price, you know barrel of oil like I'm from Canada. Alberta started really digging up the tar sands in earnest um when when oil was was almost at two hundred dollars a barrel, right um and it has been um you know, going down steadily over years. And now has just completely plummeted. Now it has rebounded a bit. But these communities have just been um, just yanked around in a way that I think if we are able to present jobs that aren't subject to this commodity roller coaster, there is a lot to be said for it. And unfortunately, we've had governments for a long time that have been, you know, you said earlier, we don't want to pick winners, Right. Where there and there and I think that this is the legacy of, of uh, you know neoliberal logics where we have people in government who frankly don't believe in governing who are afraid um, to be leaders in, in 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 even in moments of profound crisis even when it is so obvious um that industries have massively mismanaged their boom times left themselves no cushion whatsoever have are returning again and again for bailouts and still we have governments that won't say okay, We're we're going to take the wheel for a little while, and you are going to be producing. You know, if you're an auto company that has mismanaged itself, maybe you'll be producing public transit for a while. Um, And and you know, in, in the 2009 economic crisis, it began in 2008, but when we were really designing stimulus programs, it was 2009, 2010. You know, we heard the exact same thing in Europe and North America. We don't want to pick winners. Um, and that was a tremendous lost opportunity, um, because the banks were on their knees, the auto companies were on their knees, the insurance companies were on their knees. We should have had a green new deal then, and we didn't. And we don't have. We're not going to get another chance if we don't do it this time.
1: Yeah, the phrase. I mean, one of my forerunners in the in the job that I've got um, as a co-leader of the Green Party actually was shopping a green new deal in response to the GFC 10 years ago so uh to some extent we've been able to kind of brush that off and go oh well look <laughs> you know, this is what we should have done a decade ago um and 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 I have to say not just uh within my own team but I am noticing quite a number of people who are saying you know what the the GFC recovery didn't seem as well executed as uh as we might have thought at the time like it kind of got stuff back to normal but there are long-term consequences to the way that that the way that that was done and and there does seem to be a kind of a question about well how do you design a stimulus package that doesn't merely flow capital um, into the asset owners where you get this huge asset bubble like we've had for most of the last decade um, but actually gets it to the people who who really need it um, without it then flowing through them um, and back into those same those same kind of asset owners. Right.
0: And I mean, I think, you know, in this moment where, um, a lot of businesses are going to be going bankrupt. We need to be looking at different ownership models, including uh, cooperative ownership, including in renewable energy. Um, you know, we've seen this in Scandinavia, we've seen it in Germany. That some of the places where you have the highest levels of buy-in for community for, for renewable energy are places where municipalities collectively own the renewable energy. They're able to keep the revenues in their communities to pay for services. Um, I think we should be looking. We should be very um, expansively defining also what what a green job is. That it isn't only those public transit jobs and renewable energy jobs and you know efficiency jobs. Yes, those are all green jobs. But one of the things that that we've been talking about in our little uh, organization, the Leap, is that a, there's a lot of low carbon work that goes on that isn't recognized as. A green job, um, because it isn't you know a guy in a hard hat putting up a solar panel. It's a woman, um, you know, teaching a kid in a preschool, Um, and uh, you know maybe it's an artist, maybe it is, um, maybe it is a home a home care worker, an elder care worker. Um, So there's a lot of work that is done by women, you know, in our our country overwhelmingly immigrant women that is undervalued, um, underpaid, and is already low carbon and could easily be made more low carbon if these workers were really brought into the discussion of what a Green New Deal is. That's why we call it, you know, when we wrote the Leap Manifesto, we called it an an economy caring for each other and the earth, right? And really foregrounding the caring economy as part of the green economy. And I think um, in the, in the, people are calling it the post COVID world. I don't know how I feel about that. I also don't think it's going to be post exactly for a long time and care workers are going to be all the more important. Um, and you know, something like if we look at what's going on in the the debates around schools right now, you have got all these tech companies who are moving in fast saying, well, you know, schools are pretty unsafe. Um, look what we've been able to do with remote learning. Maybe we should do a lot more of that and we should just spend all of our money buying tablets and computers, and, and you know, and, and I think one of the things that we have learned, and this is another conversation, I think we should be treating the internet as a commons. It is, it, you know, it clearly is a core service that keeps us alive in these moments. And I think it is really problematic that we're relying on private tech companies to get it. Um, but Given that we are now dealing with an intersection of an ecological crisis, a health crisis and an austerity crisis, right, budget crises. So, you know, given that we're dealing with this intersection of a health crisis, um, a climate crisis and a budgetary crisis, right, which, you know, all too well, I'm sure um, we don't have limitless money. So if we spend it all on tech for schools, then it is going to mean layoffs for teachers, right? It is going to mean layoffs for special education teachers. It is going, we are going to be making choices where we are buying tech and we are sacrificing people. And so I just think we need to, um, you know, one of the reasons why I think we need to recognize care work as climate work is that, you know, if, if we need more social distancing, why aren't we talking about? having classrooms that are half the size with twice as many teachers and more outdoor education, that's another way to get more distance and have people less on top of each other. You know, if we're worried about, about virus spread, it doesn't all have to be kids alone staring at screens in their homes, um, you know, and mothers who can't work.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've, I've had a, no, a number of, uh, um, parents of young children uh, who uh, either work uh, with me or, or, or friends of mine who have said, well, at least I'm not going to be one of those parents who goes to their grave wishing they'd spent more time with their kids. It is interesting. So one of the things that the the pandemic crisis has revealed, and, and you mentioned this before, is that you know, who are our essential workers? Who are the people who ensure that when we are all locked up in our rooms for a month at a time, that we get fed, uh, that we're, um, you know, that we continue to have the rubbish taken away uh, and, um, uh, you know, essential services um, like electricity <laughs> uh, and and so on, and who, who kind of keep the lights on for the country whilst... Most of us are on the bench,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and and you're right. I do think that there has been a, a a sort of a shift in appreciation because only two months ago we were debating about whether the minimum wage should increase by a dollar mm-hmm. um, over the course of the next year, and uh, you know, it, 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 I mean, something I have to say makes me quite angry um, is that these are the these are these are those people, right? Is that <laughs> that the the kind of disjoint in people's minds between saying, oh, well, on the one hand, you know, we can't afford to pay these people another dollar, um, but on the other hand, they're essential. Um, You know, I I guess I've got to hope that that's going to to shift.
0: I hope so. I mean, because I think that the danger is when you have unemployment levels as as high as they are, that is absolutely interpreted as an opportunity by, you know, the Amazons of the world um, to say, well, you know, if you don't like the job, leave. We've got We've got armies of other workers who want your job and, you know, are so desperate that they're willing to accept unsafe conditions. Um, And so, yeah, I think that we are in a moment where there is a huge amount of appreciation for those essential workers, but we have to build on that very, very consciously and quickly, right? I mean, I think this is something that we do need to learn from the shock doctrine is these are, we are, we are in a malleable moment. And, and things are going to change quickly one way or the other. And I guess I would say to put it in kind of crass terms, I think that the good guys generally are a little bit timid in these moments. And, you know, you don't want, you know, there's a feeling of, well, let's, 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 let's let people take care of themselves. And like, you know, we're in the middle of a crisis, let's get through the crisis. And then we'll worry about the structural stuff. And meanwhile, um, People with absolutely no morals or compunction are behind the scenes pushing a very, very uh, draconian future. So, um, you know, in my experience of, you know, spending a lot of time in 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 places that are in the midst of different kinds of shocks, um, I have seen people attempt to resist this these strategies by simply saying no, like simply saying, like, no, we won't you know, we're not going to accept economic austerity for a crisis created by the banks, you know, after the financial crisis or lots of examples of that kind of thing. Puerto Rico after a hurricane saying, no, you know, we're not going to let you close our schools and people organize and they have protests. But unless there is an alternative vision out of crisis that is equally bold, equally confident. Right. you, that, that people's desire for something, anything, right, any kind of plan um, will win out, right? So it, it, this is why it is not just a question of rejecting the shock doctrine. It is a question of putting forward a clear, bold, uh, and transformative pathway out of crisis, out of our multiple overlapping and intersecting crises,
1: well, funny you should say that because coincidentally, we have an election uh, in about five months time on September the 19th uh, and in the United States where you live at the moment, there is also uh, an election which the world is paying a lot more attention to than they are ours. Um,
0: I'm paying attention to yours. I, won't, I, I, I won't, <laughs> You guys have to win and you have to keep it being a shining light showing us that there is another way out of this.
1: Very nice of you to say so. Thank you. I mean, it's interesting because the the timing of it is such that you will have competing visions for the rebuild. Uh, And in some ways, it, it almost makes sense to have an election at a moment like this because so that you can actually debate, you know, which version of the future do you want to go down? And actually, it does kind of make sense to seek the mandate of the people to say, look. Uh, we've got a choice to make here. We can go down path A or path B or path C, um, and but also, obviously, the context of uh, of the pandemic crisis makes it extremely difficult to execute an election campaign. Um, and 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 there is an incumbency at the moment uh, during the crisis. People tend to kind of rally around, but we also know that in a few months' time, unemployment will be worse. The you know. Situ- that the economic situation will be worse so that it's highly changeable. So a lot of what you've been talking about is how we frame things up and how we communicate what it is that we're talking about. Um, and in This Changes Everything, you were highly critical of uh, efforts to frame climate change in ways that sort of ally with the kind of dominant economic model. And now we're talking about green jobs. Which sounds a bit like speaking to that economic narrative. Is it just that the context has changed, or are we talking about different things?
0: No, I mean, and this changes everything. I was absolutely talking about green jobs. Um, but I mean, what I was critical of was this idea of sort of limitless green growth. Um, and we have to be honest about the fact that that we we super consumers, we over consumers, we who are part of the you know, 20% of humanity or that are responsible for 70% of the emissions are going to have to consume less. It isn't just flipping a switch from fossil fuels to green energy. It is about different priorities. And that's why, you know, I've been talking about the caring economy and putting an emphasis on different parts of our society which actually happen to be the parts that improve quality of life a lot more um, than a culture of, of limitless consumption. And you know, that is something I've been writing about since I and talking about since I wrote No Logo, you know, more than 20 years ago. Um, to me, it's all kind of the same story of like, is shopping gonna be our primary pastime and leisure activity? Um, or are we gonna derive meaning from other parts of our lives, right? Um, and you know, when we map what a Green New Deal would look like um, you know one of the things that we take inspiration from is the fact that under the original New Deal there was more public funding for the arts, for murals and theater and 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 every form of uh, of of artistic expression than at any other point in in American history, and it was a it led to a renaissance, um, in, you know, in this country. So uh, I don't think jobs has ever been the problem. Um, you know, I think that the idea of limitless growth and consumption, but just, you know, with the, with flipping a switch to green, um, has been, has been the problem. And I do think that this moment where we are more in touch with what, where we actually get pleasure and satisfaction and how, what improves quality of life is a a good time to have those conversations. because this has been a kind of a pause for some people, for privileged people. Some people are working harder than they have ever worked. And we see that, we see them in a way that we didn't see them before. And we should be be expressing that appreciation with more than applause. (laughs) Um, It should be be expressed through job security and safety and living wages, right? and the right to unionize and and all kinds of things that are being denied in this moment. So I think there's a lot to build on. And I think in lots of ways this is a kind of a it's a moment where we need political leaders who are also um you know who know how to tell who know how to 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 tell a narrative, right? Which is like where are we? Where are we going? <laughs> what are we drawing on? What are the values that are going to animate our future, right? Like it isn't just technocratic. It is about whether or not we cherish each other and the natural world, right? Because, hey, like I'm here in the United States. I'm um, I, 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 talking to you from a state that yesterday, 308 people died. You are in a country where 21 people died over the entire course of the pandemic so far, okay? 21 people, 308 people died yesterday. More than 21 people died in my state this morning, okay? And we are in a moment where we are seeing a barbarism rise, right? Where the Trump administration is leading this call of just telling people that they have to be okay kind of stepping over corpses to get to the nail salon that we have to live with mass death math mass, mass death and be okay with it, right? The, the, and those are the values that they are gonna run on in this election, right? And you know, I'm heartbroken that I don't believe that we have a candidate in the Democratic Party who gets how morally outrageous this moment is and is is able to really speak to people in the language of values and say, I believe that every single life is a value. And, and because of that, I believe every single person should have universal health care and everybody deserves a home. I mean, look, I like I worked real hard for Bernie Sanders. I went to you know five states and gave hundreds, not hundreds. I gave dozens of speeches. Um, you know, I've never worked on a presidential campaign before, but and I didn't work for money. I volunteered, but I I believed so much in his candidacy because I believe that this moment demands that kind of moral leadership. Um, so I don't know. Good luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> I wish us luck.
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I absolutely do. Um, that's a pretty sobering uh, kind of note there. Um, and I hadn't realized you know what the numbers were for for New Jersey, I mean that 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 is quite extraordinary. I um, so I'm I'm aware I'm taking up quite a lot of your time, and so I'm just trying to think of a moment a, a way to kind of conclude here. Socialism or barbarism? <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this: you know, you have talked a lot about climate justice, and uh, you know, you're you're a lecturer. In, in in part uh, on feminism, and you've talked about the role of uh, women's work um, and um, and caring work, and that is something that I think is at risk of being left out uh, of the kind of narrative. It's all very industrial, you know, and and it can mm-hmm. be you know it can be green industrial, sure, you know that's better than not, <laughs> uh, but you you know your sense of how these things integrate, and and I I am curious about the kind of the link between the climate change and social justice, and how you seem to seamlessly say that those are one and the same thing.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I don't think that we would be where we are at in the climate crisis if we if we valued human life. Um, to me, it's always been about social justice. It's, um, you know, when, when I like in this, in this moment in the United States where you're listening to public figures, rationalize mass death in the name of getting back to economic growth, you know, there's something that feels really familiar about it from going to UN climate summits, you know, and, and, and and, listen, and and witnessing the debates between wealthy countries saying oh no we have to let we have to let temperatures rise by 2 degrees celsius and you know having pacific island nations chanting to 1.5 to survive and you know those moments right when those temperature targets are set and you'll have african delegates calling it genocide right they are very clear that that the that the, the, the quest of the wealthy world to pursue economic growth is coming at the cost of their lives and their cultures. and and so in in a lot of ways, I think the moment we're in now is that that logic has just come home. like that that logic is now coming home to the you know the 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 wealthiest country in the world. Um, and as always, it, it follows pre-existing fault lines of inequality, injustice, racism. Um, so, you know, the people who are most vulnerable, who, who are being sacrificed in this moment are overwhelmingly the poor African-Americans, Latinos, people who live in the most polluted neighborhoods. I mean, these issues are all totally interconnected. I mean, what I marvel at is that we've ever been able to separate them, to be honest. You know, I started writing about climate change. When I was covering Hurricane Katrina and, and what was happening in New Orleans, and I came to it as somebody who was a like a, a war correspondent and had just come back from Iraq and was writing about these private companies that were profiteering from disaster. And so I went to New Orleans because all those companies went to New Orleans. My photographer from from Iraq said, you have to get here. It's Baghdad on the bayou, Halliburton's here, Bechtel's here, Blackwater's here. They're all cashing in on this disaster zone. And so I was like, oh, like, I mean, it's not like I didn't care about climate change, but I just thought, oh, the greenies are worrying about that. I'm worried about more important things, you know? And, and, uh, but it was seeing that intersection of of climate, race, a completely neglected public sphere that sort of brought me into this world. But from the beginning, to to me, it was always clear that you can't pry this crisis apart from all these other crises. And I think in lots of ways, what we're dealing with is the legacy of kind of the NGOization of the world. And that's a whole other conversation that we don't have time for, how we ended up in those silos. But maybe in this moment of intersecting crisis that affects everything and everyone will kind of put the pieces of our world back together and come up with holistic solutions.
1: Naomi, thank you. We, uh, I guess my intention with this podcast uh, series is to try and get an international perspective brought into the New Zealand discourse, if you like, into the, you know, the debates and the conversations that we're having about where we go from here. Given what you've just said, what would you like to say to New Zealanders at large?
0: Well, I'm sure that it feels, (laughs) you feel very far away from, from a lot of what goes on um, certainly in the United States. Um, I think this is a moment where a lot of people are paying attention to what is going on in New Zealand. And I know that it is easy for somebody far away like me to idealize uh, especially, you know, in Trump's America, you know, I'm looking for hope. I don't want to be I used to joke about like, you know, Americans that would go to Latin America as and that uh, looking for hope as like hope miners, and that they were like extractive, like took an extractive attitude towards other people's um, politics and and sort of extracted hope. So I don't want to be like a, a hope extractor from New Zealand because I know enough to know that everything is more complicated than it seems from far and that no government is perfect, including yours. Um, and you know, that policies that I've taken great inspiration from, like the, the, um, banning of new oil and gas exploration offshore, um, you know, it could be better. I mean, you could be winding down existing production, but, uh, but to me, what I think is really distinctive about about the way your government has led through not just this crisis, but also, um, the, the horrific, um, mosque, um, uh, uh racist attacks, um, mass murders, um, is that I think you're providing a a model of of a sober, humane, democratic um, um, route through very real and complex crises, right? Um, That doesn't put all of our faith in surveillance technologies, but really recognizes that, that we get through this as people, right? By taking care of each other. Um, so that's what I see in what, in, 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 in some of these ways that you, that you have, you as a country, not just as a government, but as a country have navigated some pretty extreme events recently. Um, and I think we are in a moment where we are as a world, we're so desperate for a different kind of leadership than we're getting from the Trumps and the Boris Johnson's and the Jair Bolsonaro's and this sort of like these, these, these men figures who have failed so miserably in the face of these very real undeniable <laughs> crises. Um, that I think you have a chance to lead, um, to, 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 to to just really punch above your weight, like to have an impact well beyond your borders, because people are watching you in the way that they are. And I see it as a very feminist leadership. Once again, I don't want to over-idealize it because I know that being far away makes everything look rosy, but I still think it is incredibly important. And that if you have critiques, as I'm sure your listeners have, and including really valid ones, you know, that's all the more reason to continue and deepen the project, right, to, to improve it. Um, and, and you can only do that, you know, if you have some power. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a good position to be in. Keep it up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, we will do our best and then we'll see what people say come September. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for your time and for your generosity. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. Stay in touch and best of luck.
1: Big thanks to Naomi Klein for joining me. And thanks again to you for listening. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz my guest next week is the hugely influential economist kate Rayworth, who is best known for her work on donut economics an approach to thinking about economic growth that has taken up around the world see you then This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.